Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. You can find me at BenLewisSN590, and you can find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. Well, two weeks have passed at the All England Club, and we were treated, as usual, to some spectacular tennis, particularly over the weekend. Simona Halep has proven her worth as a multiple Grand Slam champion, and on a brand new surface, Canada's own Gabriela Dabrowski reached her first career final in women's doubles, and of course, Novak Djokovic reaffirmed himself as the very best in the sport, winning his fifth Wimbledon title, defeating Roger Federer. Now, our special guest this week, tennis commentator and presenter for Love Sport Radio, Abigail Johnson, uh, joins us on the program. Abigail, thanks uh, so much for joining us this week. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, we're happy to have you, and I I figure we have to begin on the men's side because we were treated to truly an epic encounter in Sunday's final. We'll we'll start with that. Djokovic defeating Federer in a seesaw match, 7-6, 1-6, 7-6, 4-6, 13-12, uh, for you, where do you think this final would rank among maybe all-time great matches in terms of quality, atmosphere, and and really everything that was at stake? I mean, it's massive on, across the scale. It's got to be right up there. Um, I think for, for Djokovic, I mean, he called it one of his best mental victories, but with so much on the line in this particular match, he had um, the Grand Slam records, obviously, as the big thing. If Federer had won this one, there would have been six Grand Slams between him and Djokovic. Now there's only the four. So I think in that respect, and here at the present moment, that's absolutely massive. But, you know, first Grand Slam to go to a tiebreak at 12-all in the fifth set, which has happened quite quickly after that rule got introduced. So it's going to go down in history for, for a number of reasons as far as records are concerned. As far as the quality of the match goes, I'm, I wouldn't put it up there with the 2008 Wimbledon final. I think that both Djokovic and Federer will look back at the match and see opportunities missed. I felt like Djokovic was giving Federer a lot more openings than he usually would when these two face off in a slam final. He's kind of known for not really giving an inch when it really matters. And to be fair, it was, again, a case of Djokovic rising in the big moments and the pressure moments. But throughout the clash, there were openings, giving, you know, the a missed second serve returns, those kinds of things. And, and Federer at times just wasn't really capitalizing and vice versa. Federer was kind of making some mistakes and you were expecting Djokovic to kind of come roaring through and it, at times it just wasn't happening. So while there were some amazing shots and brilliant exchanges throughout the clash, I wouldn't put it up right up there with, with quality clashes like the 2008 final. I'm not sure about you guys. Yeah, that 2008 final for me is is clearly the one that I'm going to go back and, and compare it to because it was a, a long, epic five-set final between two of the, the all-time greats. But it doesn't quite come close for me either to that 2008 one. Uh, that one, to me, you know, the first one where Rafa dethrones Roger at Wimbledon after Federer taking the previous two, uh, that was pretty shocking in, in many ways. A lot of people didn't know if Rafa would be able to do that. We knew he was such a great clay court player, uh, obviously, at that point, but he hadn't yet proven himself capable of, of winning slams as, as he has since then, obviously, on the other surfaces. So that was a big one. 
And and also now we know that Rafa, Roger, Novak, they're they're three the three all time greats. No matter what happens for the rest of their careers, that's established. So regardless, I think of of who wins at this point, we already know and acknowledge their greatness. Whereas back in two thousand eight, there was still a whole lot more up in the air. I feel like. Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. Um, I mean, one of the things I found really interesting about this final, I'm, I'm not sure about you guys, is that. From the offset, I was pretty convinced that Djokovic was going to win in five sets to the point where I was sat watching this surrounded by Federer fans. And every time Federer won a set, they would get so excited. And I was probably a killjoy. I was like, yeah, he'll, he'll lose the second. He'll lose the next set. And then, and then when he won the fourth set, I was like, yeah, no, it's, it, he'll lose in five. Um, and the, the, the real shocking moment for me in that final was when Federer actually broke to serve for the championship because... I just never, I, I never saw that coming because when I looked at this match, I thought it doesn't matter what game plan Federer brings to the table. He, he was going for it. He was aggressive for much of the clash, which is what he needed to do against Djokovic, a, a player like Djokovic who, you know, will wear you down in the long rally if he really had to, had to go for it. And I think that, you know, in, in that second set, in that fourth set, he really stepped up and he did that. But the mental strength of Novak Djokovic is what stands out. And when it comes to a Grand Slam final, even if he's not at his best, he always finds a way through. So even as Federer had those two championship points, I did not believe that it was going to go his way. Just because whether it is in tie breaks, whatever it takes, Djokovic just finds a way to grind through. And it's incredible, really. I've seen a lot of comments on this final saying, that it's unfair, that Federer played the better match. I mean, he led every stat bar one, therefore Federer should have won. That's not how tennis works. It doesn't matter if you played the, the best game for the majority of the match. It matters about peaking at the right moments. And I think Federer hit 11 unforced errors during those tie breaks. And I don't think Djokovic hit a single one across all three, which is massive. I mean, Djokovic mentally now is surely far above anyone else on the circuit right now and you'd have to put him right up there all time I would say I think you hit the nail on the head when you said whatever it takes it seems whatever version of Novak Djokovic we get in these grand slams his will and desire to win and come through in these enormous pressure moments obviously I think a lot of people maybe had some memories to the 2011 U.S. Open semifinal Federer up 5-3 serving 40-15 for a spot in that final uh, to face Rafael Nadal Djokovic uh, hammers that cross-court uh forehand winner off off the return suddenly it's 40 30 and suddenly completely flips the match around wins that 7-5 and goes on to win the 2011 u.s open title and i think back even to to last year actually the semifinal he played with nadal when they were at uh, 7-7 in the fifth set and he saved two break points uh again with a huge forehand pass so uh ice in his veins obviously i, I think he's the most mentally strong tennis player uh, we've probably ever seen and as you said you look at the metrics in this match better winning 79 percent of first serve points versus 74 94 winners overall he converts seven of 13 break points he wins 14 more total points, out aced Novak Djokovic by 15. He had 25 aces overall. And yet somehow, again, we see Djokovic uh, on the winning end, uh, just finding a way to win those most crucial points every time. It's really incredible. I mean, how does this affect Roger Federer going forwards? Because at the end of the day, tie breaks aside, he could not have produced a better game plan. 
there were times when he didn't take advantage of things, but, you know, he was stepping up and trying to assert himself. And I genuinely was impressed by the way he handled himself after losing the championship points. Uh, at that point, I thought he would probably fall apart a bit. But actually, he looked really focused. And had that not gone through a fast tiebreak, I think we could have seen a very different result. I felt that Djokovic was holding out for the tiebreak because when that came, he could see the finishing line. And before that, I felt like Federer was definitely pushing and looking the man more likely to break. So having come that close, going on now away from Wimbledon, how does this affect Federer's mentality? Because... Physically, we know he's fine. You know, he's light on his feet. He's hitting the forehand and backhand as well as he ever did. But going on to, to the next Grand Slam, to the Grand Slams after, if he comes up against Djokovic again, do we think this has an impact? I don't think personally, and it's a good question, a fair question, but I don't think personally that this affects Roger one bit. I think he's probably off mm. with his family now, leaving this one behind him. He's played in so many big matches, many that have obviously gone his way, some that haven't, that for him, I think at this stage of his career, almost 38 years old, that it's easier to let it go, despite the fact that for us watching, and certainly for his fans, those ones that you were surrounded with watching the match, probably lingers a lot more for some of them. But for someone like Roger, I think ever since that resurgence in 2017, I mean, he went almost five years without winning a Grand Slam, and you can't tell me there wasn't part of him that even doubted he might not ever get that opportunity again. So I think ever since 2017, Aussie Open, Wimbledon, and then winning another Aussie Open on top of that, sort of the icing on the cake to his career, whether or not he gets another slam or not, I think he's out there playing with no regrets, and he'll play freely when we get to the next slam in uh, Flushing Meadows. Well, he certainly seemed to be really positive uh, from his post-match quotes looking back on the match. And that's so important, isn't it? Being able to look at a match like that that's a killer in a way, but being able to draw out the positive parts. I guess there are some times when you need to look at what you did wrong and you need to assess that. But for Federer, really, in this match, there was a minimal amount that went seriously wrong. You look at the tie breaks, okay, and, and you go deeper there. And that's really more of a mental issue than a physical issue on the championship points as well. He didn't really put too much of a foot wrong. Um, he did, on, on the first match point, he did run around to try and hiss off the forehand when he had it in place for the backhand, which maybe showed a bit of doubt. Uh, and then it was very quick to try and come forward and finish things off on the second match point. And Djokovic had just the right height and placement on that pass. But all in all, I think it really comes down to to the mental head game for Federer and therefore if he can stay positive he has ample chances going forward Djokovic on the other hand from his post-match quotes seems to almost have done more mental preparation than physical for this final he talks about um, playing a match through in his head before he before he actually goes out and takes it takes place on the court. Uh, he talks about um, choosing the chance of the crowd and changing uh, Roger's name to Novak <laughs> and all the all these things. And it, you it have to do that funny, one, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the, the the support is so strong for Federer, but it's these little things that can actually make a huge amount of difference. And I think stuff like that should actually make his opponents wary. Because Djokovic can take something that seems or would seem so negative to another player, and he can completely turn that on its head. And I, I think that's an incredible power to have in this sport, especially in a Grand Slam final. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. And our guest this week, Abigail Johnson, you can find her on Twitter as well at 
Abigail Tennis, of course, discussing this uh, epic five-set, near-five-hour 2019 men's Wimbledon singles final. And uh, for Novak Djokovic, more history made. First player ever to save championship points at Wimbledon and win the title since Bob Falkenberg did it all the way back in 1948. And now, look, he's he's won four of the last five Grand Slams. He leads Roger Federer in Grand Slam matches 10-6. to six. He leads their head-to-head 26-22. He leads Rafael Nadal in head to head 75 career titles one question i have why is novak not as loved as rafa and roger it's a good question it's a question i think that's been asked many times over many years for me it's always been the fact that djokovic behind when djokovic came to the sport People already had the the perfect rivalry. You had Federer versus Nadal. Each of them um, played tennis in polar opposite styles. Federer was slick and quick, and Rafa was gritty and uh, so determined with with the top spin. You know, their strokes are just hit completely differently, and both of them are, are so perceived as so humble and, and so gracious. And and therefore, I feel that when Djokovic came on the scene. People already felt like they had everything they need, and therefore Djokovic was almost cast like the villain trying trying to intercept this rivalry. And you know, I don't want to say that he wasn't welcome on the scene, but I think there were a lot of people that felt like they already had everything they needed with the Federer and versus Nadal rivalry. And you know, with Federer and Nadal, they, they just come across so well on the camera. You know, they've had many years with the media and, and growing a fan base. And their rivalry very much, I think, has been key in being able to do that because it's been around the longest. And just because it's this continuity that, that tennis fans and non-tennis fans alike are drawn to, it's become this massive deal. And I, again, I reiterate, I think that Djokovic just came along later. And if it had been, for example, Federer versus Djokovic to start things off, then maybe we'd be looking at a different story. Yeah, I think your third wheel theory is probably uh, on the money there mm-hmm. because truthfully, when I think about it, th- there's really very little other explanation for it. I personally was mm-hmm. was thrilled when Novak came along because despite the fact that, yes, Roger and Rafa had very different game styles and, and personalities and, and whatnot, um, you know, that, that head-to-head was leaning very heavily in, in Rafa's favor. So it's not like it was a 50-50 split, greatest rivalry, you know, necessarily we had ever seen in, in that sense. Um, I, I do know that Novak had those uh, sort of impersonations he was doing earlier <laughs> on in his career, which made me laugh. I mean, in particular, the Maria Sharapova one I thought was spot on. But uh, I think maybe <laughs> some people just don't have the sense of humor for for someone like that who was a little bit quirky earlier in his career. Um, I, I think his post-match you know, celebration when he won the other day at Wimbledon, where he was just sort of like half soaking it in, half perhaps not wanting to, you know, give in to the crowd who had, as you mentioned, heavily supported Federer, as they so often do. Uh, but mm-hmm. I've got no problem with that. I've, I've never had an issue with how Novak uh, approaches, um, you know, his game and his off-court persona. And, hey, having three great players is even better than just having two, isn't it? Exactly, you would think so. I mean, the big three, each one of them is pushing the rest to go higher, to achieve more. I think all of them have acknowledged that. And for me personally, I think it's fantastic to see these three players, each from from different backgrounds, different places, but able to come together and drive each other and push each other to the very limits. It's fantastic. And um, I think 
I can't really, because I'm not observing this as a fan, I, I can't really put myself in their shoes and see from their perspective. I mean, obviously, when Djokovic first came on the scene, it was a long time ago. But in a way, I kind of almost wish that Djokovic would go back to being a bit more laid back, being a bit more of a joker, as he's known, because I feel like that is very genuine from him. And I, I feel like he's in a position at the moment where he can't really win, because if he's like that, then there are people that just don't warm as much to that personality. For some reason, it just doesn't come across as well on camera. But when he's trying to rein that in a bit, suddenly he looks pretentious. And I think Djokovic really is in a really difficult situation in terms of how he is perceived because for, for me, from, from my perspective with, with the two sides of things, either he is more relaxed and more kind of the Djokovic we saw a few years ago, or he is like he is now trying to be professional, trying to rein it in. It, it just seems to me that he can't win either way in terms of public perception. Yeah, you might be completely right. It was very interesting what uh, Nick Kyrgios actually said uh, the other month uh, appearing on a podcast that uh, Djokovic has a sick obsession with being liked. And I don't know if that's completely true, but there might be some validity to it. And I almost want him to to play the villain, be the guy who spoils the party for Nadal and Federer. I, I kind of liked when he, he was screaming, showing emotion, you know, tearing tearing the, the shirt off in 2012 after he won that epic Australian Open final over Nadal. I, I kind of like that intensity. This was an incredibly muted celebration in front of a crowd that, let, let's be serious, was, you know, 99% pro-Federer. I didn't really grasp any Novak fans outside of his box there cheering. So I, I've never really seen anything like that. Hey, isn't it kind of funny that Kyrgios is talking about how Novak has this obsession of being liked? I mean, maybe Kyrgios could try that at some point and, <laughs> and see if it works for him, you know, and just be nice to people. Well, that could be a thing, too. Uh, certainly everybody has a pin, an opinion on Nick Kyrgios. Uh, we'll, we'll continue uh, talking a little bit about the big three, uh, just to, to note that they've won uh, 11 consecutive Grand Slams now, 54 in total, 20 for Federer, 18 for Nadal, 16 now for Novak Djokovic. Uh, my question, I suppose, uh, Abigail, is why is the rest of the field so far behind? Are they simply not good enough? Or are these three just too good? You know, I think the next gen get a heck of a lot of stick, really, for, for this whole situation. I mean, it's easily forgotten. I feel like everyone who watches tennis has a very short memory. It was, it was a few months ago that Alexander Zverev was winning the ATP finals, beating Federer and Djokovic back-to-back. It's not that these guys can't rise up and beat the big three, because they can. We, we see it happening all the time outside of Grand Sands. But the best of five thing, I think, is massive, both physically and mentally. A lot of these guys are still developing physically. And you look at the big three, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, and not only are they years ahead of these guys in terms of physical development, but also they've been playing best of five sets a lot longer. They've had the highs and lows. And they've also had best of five sets at Masters 1000 events previously. The finals used to be best of five. So they have had this wealth of experience that I feel the younger guys were thinking, Zverev, Shapovalov, Alger Aliassime, you know, these guys just haven't had access to to the experience of Djokovic, Federer and Nadal and I I do believe that there will come to a point where the younger guys are breaking through. Sitsipas beat Federer at the Australian Open. He played incredibly. There were some tight moments there and he came out on top. So it's doable but it's difficult to string those wins together across a fortnight um, playing more matches and more sets than you usually would and I think it has a lot to do with the, the mental demand of best of five and the physical demand of, of that as well. I, I don't think it's a 
a real cause to be concerned, I think, is something that will come with time for the, for the younger guys. So that's interesting. You're, you're thinking then if it was best of three Grand Slams, as some people out there would like to see. I'm not one of them. But uh, you think <laughs> if it was best of three at the Slams, we would have seen some breakthrough already from these next-gen guys, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's seven matches at a Grand Slam. That's only one more than some of the Masters events, you know. It's not a big difference. And I think... You know, it, it's just so different when you're down, I don't know, two sets to love against one of the big guys. It is very difficult to find the, the mental resolve and belief that you're actually going to come back from that deficit. Even going down a set, I mean, for, for so often, even with Federer and Nadal, I feel it's so key for them to take the first set off Novak Djokovic because he's so strong mentally and if you go down a set, you know, you don't just have to come back and win two sets. You have to come back and win three. He has opportunity. There's a bit of a breather when there's best of five. He has time to wander and come back, as we saw in the Federer match. And there's so many um, mental difficulties to deal with. And then with the best of five, you know, that's the physically, um, we've seen of going to five sets so many times and just eventually it becomes too much because he's dragged himself through some best of five wins, but it's ultimately come to the point where he is flagging physically and mentally. And this format, and I am one of the people that wants to see this format stay because I do believe it separates uh, the good players from the best players uh, for this exact reason, that it is so all-round demanding. And I believe that the majors, given that they are the most prestigious events, should have something that separates them from the Masters 1000 events, from the 500 events, etc. They should be that much tougher. And it's just something that the next gen are going to have to keep plugging away at, you know, get experience, develop physically, and, and their time will come. I, I think also that, uh, you know, to touch on the mental aspect, you know, these guys like Zverev, Paz, they've admitted to having some sort of mental uh, lapses and lack of confidence this year at different times. Zverev dealing mm. with some things off court. Pass after he lost to Oje Aliassime yet again not too long ago, mentioned how he's kind of in his head and he gave him so much credit and praise. And that to me was kind of shocking as well that he went so over the top in praising another opponent and sort of highlighting his own, um, you know, lack of confidence. But you can sort of give these young guys, uh, you know, a break when you think about they've grown up in a world where Nadal, Djokovic and Federer have been dominant since these guys were literally kids. They've grown up watching them win Grand Slams. It's really the only tennis world that they know. They didn't grow up watching Sampras, Agassi, Becker, Edberg when it was, you know, trading hands more frequently. They've watched this. It's all they know. So it's almost as if it's expected that it's going to continue amongst the big three, perhaps. Exactly. And something else that's also overlooked is the big three constantly have each other to keep pushing themselves. It's not like it's one individual at the top that the young players are trying to knock off and suddenly they're feeling the pressure and they're feeling they have everything to lose. Nadal, Federer, Djokovic are kind of rotating the grand slams among themselves. Like Djokovic obviously more consistent at the back end of majors at the moment, but they're almost taking it in turns to rise up at the big events. It's not like one of them is having to consistently dominate week after week, month after month. And the fact that there are three of them to knock off and not just one is massive for these young guys because often if they're going to win one of these big titles, uh, most of the time actually, they're going to have to go through at least two of those guys and knocking off one is enough of a task. I feel uh, To go through two, you know, it's, it's difficult. 
I feel like if anyone is able to knock off all three of these guys in a Grand Slam at a future date, they should be credited immediately with five, grand, five. Slam, five okay. grand Slams <laughs> to their overall tally. Well, let's give a lot of credit to Stan Wawrinka, by the way, to play in this era and own three mm. Grand Slams. That's, uh, that's incredibly impressive, I think. Um, we'll shift over to the women's side uh, because we got to get to Simona Halep, of course, and uh, proving herself, uh, if you didn't believe it already, a true all-surface player adding to her Grand Slam tally, defeating Serena Williams in the women's final 6-2, 6-2. Simona afterwards called it her very best match. Um, what did you make of her performance? Is that is that correct, her assessment? Oh, I thought she was utterly brilliant. I was incredibly pleased for her as well that she was able to, to pull that off. And what I appreciated about Simona throughout the tournament was that she had been very open with the state she was at with her physical game, with her mental game. And I think that showed how comfortable she was becoming. You could actually see it in her physically as she was progressing at the beginning of the event. I didn't think she was too convincing, but um, especially after the wins over Victoria Azarenka and Coco Goff, where she got very straightforwardly, uh, she seemed to just become comfortable. And I, I remember she used the phrase that she felt safe on the court, and that definitely came across. As far as the final goes, maybe it's something we should have seen coming because it bore astounding similarities to last year's final when Angelique Kerber took down Serena Williams. Uh, mm-hmm. Firstly, in the fact that Serena had not really gone through high-quality high top 10 opposition to get to that stage, but also because Halep's the counterpuncher, the underdog, uh, and she played with that freedom. Um, three unforced errors in a final, that's unheard of. And she did exactly what she needed to do. She, she's played Serena enough times to know what troubles her. She moved her around. She made her play the extra balls, and it was enough to... Um, it was enough to make Serena cagey. Uh, Serena said that she wasn't feeling too much tension, but if she wasn't feeling tension, she was definitely flustered by by the balls that Halep was throwing back at her. She almost didn't know how to handle the the relentless barrier across the court that was Simona Halep on that day. Yeah, I, I certainly think it bore a lot of similarities to, to last year's final Kerber winning that one, 6-3, 6-3 over Serena. Uh, just this brilliant counter-punching punch, and redirection uh, where Serena was just getting a, a bit overwhelmed and really had no uh, sense of being able to hit through Simona Halep. It, it just wasn't going to happen. And, and look for Williams. She's been getting close. She's reached uh, the final in three of the last five Grand Slams, but she hasn't posted that Grand Slam win. She still remains one behind the record Margaret Court 24 total. Do you think her game is still strong enough today? I, I know we're asking the question with Roger Federer, Serena also 37. Do, do you think her game, uh, her determination, her conditioning is strong enough to, to be able to, to equal or perhaps pass that record still? I, I've always believed in her ability and I will continue to until she hangs up the racket of her own accord. Uh, one thing I will say is that with Serena, there is so much expectation that if she doesn't come away with the trophy, the magnitude of what she's already achieved can go under the radar. Uh, since giving birth, she's reached three Grand Slam finals, which for most players would be considered a successful career if they did nothing more. For Serena, it's not hitting the goal. And it's interesting to note that. I, I certainly think that she has the drive. Um, sometimes it might come down to the body and what that allows. Uh, I'm not saying anything about Serena's age, but the knee has been a consistent problem. So she's out of control when it comes to injuries. 
But as far as her talent goes, that's very much still there. I think she showed throughout the Wimbledon fortnight that her game is there. I think that if she had um, come into the final and, and played after going down a double break with a better frame of mind, she would have had clear chances there. I felt like um, she was either rushing and going for too much or she was then kind of holding back and not going for enough. She, she couldn't find the happy medium between the two things and therefore was finished off pretty quickly. But, you know, she's Serena Williams and um, I think she's, she's taught people many times before that it would be at their peril, really, to write her off. Yeah, I just don't think she's had enough match play in 2019 and even 2018 was a limited return to the game that in those key moments, you know, you just don't have that automatic trust and belief in in your shots. You know, you have to think about it, work at it a little bit harder and it really should just be coming naturally. But understandably, that's not the case for Serena. And this doesn't take anything away from Simona Halep. She played an absolute beauty of a match. You know, sometimes you watch a match that's 6-2, 6-2 and it's awfully boring you're not into it mm-hmm. to me even though the scoreline was so you know relatively routine it was so compelling to watch Simona Hallett play at such a high level some of those shots the way she covered the court was just you know incredible to me to watch uh but Serena that's not Serena at a hundred percent and if she was at a hundred percent I think Hallep still likely would have had her on that day but at least it would have been a little bit closer we need to see Serena healthy we need to see her get into a, you know a regular succession of tournaments, and and then I think we're we're certainly going to see some um, you know some big moments ahead for her if that can happen, and that's a big if. I mean, she is uh, going to be what turning thirty eight later this year. She's uh, got a young child to take care of at home. Impossible to train at the same pace and rate as as you did before becoming a parent. Um, but if she can get healthy, at least I think uh, yeah we'll see her in the uh, champion circle once again. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think a big thing with Serena at the moment is, you know, we know she's got the physical ability. Uh, The thing here is is the head game. and I've spoken about it a lot already just tonight, you know, but I think it's so big when it comes to Grand Slam finals. Both players have, by getting there, they've proved that physically they are able to win the trophy. It's all about who has a head for the moment. It's interesting you mentioned there about had Serena brought 100% and what that would have done. What it would have done is make Halep think a bit more about the way she was. And not only did Halep execute a brilliant physical game plan, but she was mentally incredibly sound. She said she didn't think about who she was playing. She was very much focused on herself and what she was doing. But if Serena was able to assert herself a bit more, maybe even just get a break back, Halep would have had no choice but to realize who she was playing because Serena would have come roaring to the court. And the the mental side of things has such a massive say. And I think it's having a say at the moment with Serena. There is a a block when it comes to these finals. And I think the more of these finals that she loses, the harder it is for her to get over the line. When she does get over that line, which I expect her to, if she's physically fit and focused enough, then I think we could be seeing multiple more slams but all I all I can say is the more of these finals that, that she loses like this especially against a player that she's dominated so in the head-to-head despite Halep's amazing performance Serena did really dominate the head-to-head record 
it's going to be tough if she dwells on it to to get over that mental roadblock. Yeah, I don't, and I I don't think she's going to dwell on it too long, honestly. And as you said, the head to head was was dominant going in, but I really thought the way Simona Halep had played actually against Alina Svitolina in the semifinals, I thought she looked fantastic. And uh, seeing her come out of that semifinal the way she did, I thought she was going to have a great chance to win. And uh, as you said, Mike, match play for Serena has been sparse the past couple of years, and. You look through her career titles, and it's actually been quite some time uh, since she's even won a tournament. So uh, it was great for Canadian tennis fans to hear that she she is planning to play Rogers Cup in Toronto, but uh, she hasn't won a title, actually, since the Australian Open back in 2017, which, of course, we found out later she did that while eight, nine weeks pregnant, which makes that uh, an even more incredible accomplishment. So you think if she can manage that, surely get some more match play, start playing a few more tournaments, uh, she's going to be a, a definite contender, I think, at the U.S. Open. And one other thing about Simona Halep is, you know, even though Serena had such a dominant head-to-head, 9-1, to I believe, coming into this yep. match, Simona Halep is quite a different player from two years ago, you know, before Serena went off on her maternity leave and, and pregnancy. Uh, Simona Halep has been a world number one. She's won a Grand Slam before, which I think obviously took so much of the pressure off of her in those big moments. She's admitted she can play much more freely now. So it's not like Serena was coming back and playing Simona Halep, who had been frozen in time. This is a player who's come a heck of a long way in the last uh, 48, uh, or sorry, 24 months. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, if Halep can sustain this level, things could could get really interesting over the next few months. But um, sustaining after winning a slam is hard. You know, we even saw with Ashley Barty, you know, she has the the all-round game to do utter damage. But even she came up against a, a really informed player in Alison Risk. And, and there's always the potential for that happening. People are, are inspired when they come up against the, the recent Grand Slam champions, you know, to kind of step up and, and show what they can do. So if Halep can keep bringing that level, you know, it shows the, the, the vast opportunity there is in the vast pool of talent that's on the WTA circuit at the moment. But, you know, for players to see Halep, I think, rise up against Serena on a, a Grand Slam stage in that way, I think it will give other players with similar levels of talent a belief that they can potentially rise up and, and do something similar as well. So I'm, I'm really interested looking ahead to the U.S. Open, which when Serena's not 100%, it's one of the more open Grand Slams to, to seeing what could potentially arise there and, and who could potentially make a breakthrough. Yeah, well, that was going to be uh, actually my la- my last question before we we let you go. <laughs> Obviously, Ashley Barty was the number one, and uh, she couldn't pull off Wimbledon, the lost Allison Risk. Now we have Simona Halep winning a second Grand Slam title. I thought uh, Alina Svitolina took major strides at, at Wimbledon. We have one slam left, of course, uh, on the women's side coming up at Flushing Meadows. Who do you think has the most uh, to prove now on the women's side for our last Grand Slam of 2019? Oh, that's, that's such an interesting question. <laughs> I, I think with the WTA, it's so open at the moment. It still is. Even with Serena making strides, proving herself with, um, I think Barty did incredibly to transfer her clay court form to the grass. And I think she just got a rotten draw in Alison Risk at, at Wimbledon. Um, there's so many players that could, could really assert themselves. As far as someone that has something to prove, Naomi Osaka springs to mind. You know, mm-hmm. she's the defending champion, was really strong in, in transferring her form from the back end of last year into this year. And um, something that's been true of Osaka for, for a while now is that she's often 
brings her best level at the biggest stages. You know, she's won three titles, two Grand Slams and Indian Wells, which is the biggest title outside of the Slams. Um, And that level has just dropped a bit recently. I think it's a variety of things. She keeps coming up against players who know how to exploit her weaknesses, often counterpunchers, crafty players who can really make her move and make her uncomfortable on the court. And I think that when she comes up against enough of that style of opposition, it then causes her to ask internal questions. What am I doing wrong? And it, it just makes her less confident on the court. Now, coming back to the U.S. Open, a monumental amount of pressure because she's defending the title. All eyes will be on her. She lost first round at Wimbledon. So when it comes to a player who has something to prove, you can't look much further than Naomi Osaka because her talent and her passion and her drive and her mentality at times is undeniable. But she needs to be in the right headspace to unlock that and really display what we all know she's capable of in New York. Yeah, and uh, she certainly, we, we know how hard she takes the losses at Grand Slam. She wants nothing more uh, than to win. She has so much desire and passion for the sport, and uh, there will be immense pressure uh, to try and defend that title. It will be incredibly difficult to do so. Abigail, thank you so much for joining us on our episode of Matchpoint Canada. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks, Abigail. We'll talk to you again soon. I got to say before you go, also uh, love your work with Love Sport Radio and also those YouTube videos that you produce on your own. I don't know if I could talk on my own for that long. I'm, it's impressive. I'm, I'm, thank- <laughs> I'm thankful to have Ben here with me. We can split it 50-50 at least. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a good thing that I talk that long on my own, but uh, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Thank you. All right. That was Abigail Johnson. You can find her on Twitter at Abigail Tennis, and a uh, great job, of course, breaking down uh, the women's half of the draw and the men's. Uh, two very different results, two very different tournaments playing out in terms of the ladies' singles and the men's singles, equally compelling. And, and as you said, it's great to have a final. There was a 6-2, 6-2 result, but it still felt like we were watching great tennis. Yeah, I had a blast. I mean, for me, as I mentioned on Twitter to those who follow me there, I was not able to watch the uh, finals live. I somehow booked a family camping trip without looking ahead and realizing it was going to be Wimbledon finals. And I managed to go all weekend without any spoilers. So that was phenomenal. So I watched the men's semis, the women's final, the men's final all completely last night after I got home, um, which was something else. But did uh, did you drop your phone in the lake? Was that, was that what you did? How did you possibly stay away from this breaking news of, you know, Djokovic beating Federer in the 13, 12, fifth set, five hour encounter. It was everywhere. It's a fair question. Well, one was spotty self phone reception where I was camping so that that helped and the second was I was camping with my three young kids on my own so I didn't even have the time to look at any of it even if I had wanted to right um how do you watch the the finals by the way I enjoyed it in the comfort of my own home just watching alone and uh no I know (laughs) I know it's something you wanted to touch on how you like to take in watch a Wimbledon final it really is, for me, I think the most prestigious one, uh, the All-England Club uh, out of the four Grand Slams. But uh, I'm not really that big on, like, Grand Slam final parties. I kind of like watching it myself. Do people do that? I guess some people do that. I mean, Abigail said she was surrounded by Federer fans. Oh, so people that was, definitely do it. That people was interesting. definitely do it. I, uh, you know, with other sports, hockey and team sports, I do enjoy going out to a, a pub or gathering with some friends and having that social aspect to it. 
But I'm like you when it comes to tennis, and in, it's not because I'm antisocial, but I just enjoy watching those one-on-one battles mm-hmm. sort of on my own, or I've got a very small circle of people, yeah. a circle of trust that I will allow in. Like, my father has always been there because he gets tennis and he's right. covered tennis, so we've watched many, many finals over the yes. years, the yes. two of us. Uh, and now I'm bringing along my uh, nearly six-year-old son, uh, Emmett, who's turning into a tennis fan, mm-hmm. and and he can last, you know, a good 45 to an hour where he understands, okay, this is important to dad, yeah. and he asks questions and things like that, too, and so I'm trying to bring him along the right path, I guess. No, that's good. I mean, five hours is a lot to take in. I will readily admit, though, for Federer Djokovic in that final set, in that fifth set, I was standing, I was on my feet for the last, I want to say, eight service games, just in anticipation, obviously in great anticipation at 8-7-40-15 on Roger Federer's serve two championship points. So tense. So tense. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then even even after those championship points uh, vanished very quickly, uh, I found myself, I was still standing. Well, uh, one of the benefits for me watching it on PVR was I could skip through the commercials yeah, and I could get right. to the points I wanted to see more quickly. I didn't have to wait. So I was in mm-hmm. a constant state of tension, actually, because I didn't even have the commercial breaks, <laughs> I guess. But but I could go through it a little bit more quickly. So that four and a half, four, four hour and what was it? 40? Four hours, 57 minutes. Yeah, that yeah. was probably more like three hours, 45 for okay, me or okay, something that's like good. that. That's good. Skip the changeovers. Uh, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And we have to note our Canadian, our double specialist, Gabby Dabrowski, uh, making her first career Grand Slam final in women's doubles. Of course, she has two titles in mixed doubles, but this is the first time her and Julie Zhu uh, reaching the finals. Just a fantastic result, uh, losing to Barbara Stritskova and uh, Se Suwei in the finals. But uh, Stritskova also had such a fantastic tournament. You win the women's doubles title and you reach the semis and singles. That's a real dream two weeks for her, but... Excellent result for our Canadian and her and uh, Julie continue to make strides and doubles. She's returning now to uh, the top 10 uh, today. Yeah, they're a fantastic partnership and Dabrowski's really asserted herself as a, a mainstay at the top of the the doubles game, both in women's doubles and mixed doubles. Uh, fantastic to see her have that breakthrough moment in women's doubles, making her first final. Uh, once again, there had to be a player from the Czech Republic on the other side that was thwarting her <laughs> yeah. as, as they did earlier this year in Fed Cup. That's Right. And uh, Aussie Open first round, a couple of checks as well. So uh, with Streetskova this time, I thought once they got past the two Czech players uh, in the semifinals, maybe that would like, you know, kill that curse or yeah. something. In the tough three set match too, that was impressive. Siniakova and uh, Krejcikova, they were the second seed. So that, that was a big result for sure. But Gabby's doing some, some great things. And, you know, we've got all this young Canadian talent we've talked about this year, Bianca Andreescu, Felix, mm-hmm. Dennis, of course, uh, Leila Annie Fernandez, you know, with the juniors at Roland. Garros, but let's not forget who is often the last Canadian standing. It seems like is Gabby Dabrowski. So she's really been the uh, the rock for Tennis Canada here lately. Yes, and uh, the crucial anchor for Fed Cup in doubles. So reliable. Uh, I know you had a chance to do a story with her for OTA Magazine, which I recommend everybody read. Uh, that she hasn't given up on that singles dream. She still wants to play singles, but uh, she's so good at doubles that you you have to keep going when you're getting these results. Absolutely, and I mean her and and, and Julie Zhu just split something like two hundred and twenty thousand. 
$100,000. So, you know, yeah, doubles can bucks. pay, yeah. obviously not as much throughout the year and at as many tournaments at the same level as singles, but mm-hmm. that's a pretty nice payday at a, at a Grand Slam, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last week, really, we ran down the other Canadian results. Milos Raonic losing to Guido Pella in the round of 16. Shapovalov out in round one. Felix Ogialiasim out in round three. And Jeannie Bouchard out in round one. We'll catch you up with some news. Jeannie Bouchard again was playing today at the uh, Ladies Lausanne Open and tough match for her because she had the match point on her serve on her racket instead loses a six uh, two six six four seven five to Tamara Korpach so I thought Jeannie was gonna maybe break the streak and, and finally post a match when she had it on a racket there uh, and this one slipped away. Yeah, I won't believe it till I see it and that's not a knock at Jeannie, but she's just in this uh, pretty lengthy slump now, hasn't won a match since February 17th, yeah. remarkably enough, And uh, but she is getting closer. I mean, at Wimbledon, it was what, 8-6 in the, in the third mm-hmm. and here she was up a set and up a break in the second set and then as you mentioned, she had a match point in the third set too, but... Uh, You know, again, she just, in those moments, I don't think trusts in herself enough because of the fact she's on this this slide. So yeah. I think she's got to get out there and, and play more matches. Um, you know, truthfully, playing a clay court event, as as some players do after Wimbledon, a little bit bizarre to me as we're about to head into the hard court uh, stretch. Maybe it would have been a good idea to come back to Canada and, and play some of the ITF events, you yeah, know, out, out west and now in, in Quebec to get ready for it. But, um, you know, whatever the case may be, she's got to get it back out there and practice and, and, and get a, a couple more matches under her belt before uh, Rogers cup. Yeah. And, uh, speaking of ITF events, I will note Braden Schnur uh, made the final at the ITF event in Winnipeg this past week, and that's a big result for him because he debuts in the top 100 with that result. So that was an excellent tournament uh, for him before he lost to Norbert Gombos in the final 7-6-6-3. Of course, we remember Braden from earlier in the year reaching the final of the New York Open, that 250 event. So good to see him play some solid tennis again, and he is competing this week at the Hall of Fame Tennis Championships. Another ITF to watch for this week is in Gatineau. We have a handful of Canadians, including Catherine Sebov, who is the top seed there. Leila Annie Fernandez, who I know you mentioned last week, is going to play the ITF circuit this summer. Uh, Carol Zhao, we Fra- know her. Yep. Francoise Abanda also back in action. Francoise Abanda, we have not seen her in some time either. So good opportunity for a handful of Canadians uh, to get some experience match play for some of them uh, who are younger like Layla Annie Fernandez, a great opportunity to compete. Yeah, well, she for she forewent. No, she went. She decided to forego forego yeah. uh, the uh, junior event at Wimbledon to play this hard court uh, tour at the ITF level, which I think was a good idea. Uh, on the men's side, in Gatineau, also we've got uh, Vashik Pospisil, who you know coming back from a lengthy injury layoff, and he did play Wimbledon, where unfortunately he had to face Felix in the opening round. But uh, I thought all things considered, there was a lot of positive there from him. So he's going to play some of these uh, challenger events to get back into the groove hopefully yep and uh, also peter polanski got a doubles title last week uh in the uh the itf or sorry challenger event that that he was playing in so nice to see him get uh, get some confidence in in doubles too yeah some uh, excellent results really across the board at some smaller events wimbledon not so much except for gabriella dabrowski fantastic result but good to see uh some good results from Braden schnur peter polanski vashik pospisil back in the courts and all of this is leading us into the summer hardcourt swing and we're really hoping to see as many names as possible at rogers cup in toronto and rogers cup in montreal well we're gonna see all these men and women 
And I mean, if you're in any of these smaller places leading up to it, whether it was Saskatoon last week, Winnipeg, mm-hmm. or if you're in Quebec for Gatineau and then Granby, I mean, these are fantastic smaller events where you can get right up close, yeah. a lot of access to the players. You know, we've spoken to almost all of the players we've just mentioned, and they're all very approachable and, and great with their fans. So a, a nice opportunity. And then, yeah, getting ready for the Rogers Cup, where a bunch of them are going to be fighting uh, in qualifying, and some of them will hopefully be getting some, uh, undoubtedly get some wild cards yes. into the main draw too. Um, and it'll be great to see them up close in person. And uh, for fans in Toronto, we've had several Rogers Cup ticket giveaways, um, and uh, we're going to pull another name uh, right now, I guess. Yeah. And then we've got some big Montreal news too. So I guess if we start with Toronto, uh, how did we play it last week? You had to do... um, So last week we had people predicting our winners of the men's and women's singles titles at Wimbledon. And uh, I know we had, I think a couple people get it right, and then we did a a tiebreaker, but Simona Halep, Novak Djokovic, if you correctly predicted, uh, Mike, I think you have the name of our uh, champion of that Rogers Cup draw. Yes, and this gentleman predicted uh, Simona and Novak very early on as well. I know some people were saying, well, hey, I made my predictions a lot earlier than others. We made note of that. But this guy (laughs) uh, definitely was on the money. So this is at Dandy Volley on Twitter, goes by the name race r-a-y-c-e so congratulations we will be in touch for your two tickets which are for the wednesday august 7th evening session in toronto and we've got some pretty big news for next week these are hard to come by what we're going to be uh raffling off so you want to do the honors and talk about uh what what tickets we uh... yes so uh rogers cup montreal and uh i understand we are going to have the evening match monday august 5th and uh that will be uh canadian denis shapovalov so great opportunity i think some people in montreal might have memories of what denis shapovalov pulled off two years ago in montreal on center court uh you know midweek he beats a pretty familiar player yeah, not bad. Not, not bad. bad. Not yeah. a bad win, uh, beating Rafael Nadal there. So Denis Shapovalov, uh, I expect you'll get a fantastic reception from uh, the crowd in Montreal, and uh, he played so incredibly well there two years ago. He's someone we're looking to, you know, step up for the summer hardcourt swing because he's been on a slump, losing 9 of 11. But uh, I think this is going to be familiar territory, uh, turn his season around, and we have a ticket giveaway for Rogers Cup in Montreal. So... And this will be our only one, I got to say. I think these are the only tickets that we've got for that event in Montreal. They're very hard to come by. So if you're a fan who's going to be traveling to Montreal or you live in Montreal, which is my hometown, by the way, very proud to be from Montreal, Mm -hmm. um, go ahead and get in on this one because it could be the only chance we get. And uh, this week, let's just say, uh, you know, a retweet and um, a retweet and a, a follow of at Matchpoint can to to qualify for, for this one. And I'm expecting we'll get quite a few of those. Yes, that would be great. So retweet uh, this week's episode, episode 10 with Abigail Johnson. Follow us on Matchpoint Canada. We will take note of all the retweets and follows and uh, hold a raffle and pick a winner for next week uh, if you want to be part of the draw for Rogers Cup Montreal, the Monday, August 5th evening session with Dennis Shapovalov. Once again, thanks to our guest this week, Abigail Johnson. You can find her work on Twitter at Abigail Tennis. You can find us on Matchpoint Can. You can find me, Ben Lewis, at Ben Lewis, SN590. Find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan, and we will speak to you next time.